welcome to this special comfort and joy feed edition of the comfort feed podcast my name is juliana edelman and i'm Catherine cleary and this is our all singing some dancing and lots of reading christmas miscellany with really legitimate sleigh bells that Catherine can't complain about and that she's not going to stop playing throughout the episode as punishment for my dissing <laughs> of her sleigh bells last time. So pull up a seat by the fire, by the radiator, by a cookbook and have a listen. It's Luke Glazard here, your favourite Antarctic chef. Just want to wish you guys and your listeners a very happy Christmas. Uh, Happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, happy birthday to Isaac Newton and a wonderful new year. Lots of love from me and all of the penguins. Bye. Hello, hello. My name is Dominique Kemp. Just like to take this opportunity to wish all the listeners a very, very happy Christmas, happy holidays and a wonderful break. This year has been incredibly tough for so many communities uh, and especially the hospitality industry. So here's to a a good, restful and delicious stay on Christmas and a really positive and forward-thinking 2021. Season's eatings and season's greetings from us, Russell and Patrick, Gastrogays. Hi, I'm Jace Murphy from Kai Restaurant in Galway. I just want to wish all the listeners of the Comfort Feed podcast a joyful, filled, happy holidays. In a tough year, the Comfort Feed podcast was a genuine highlight, and I'd like to wish Catherine, Juliana, and all the listeners a very, very wonderful Christmas. Ciao a tutti, this is Saro. This time of the year reminds me of my home in Sicily. I always think of my nonna preparing amazing food for the family. Just thinking about it, I can smell the wonderful odors as we all sit down to eat together. Wherever you are and whoever you're with, I hope you have a buon Natale e felice anno nuovo. Joyeux Noël, les petits gourmands. Hi, my name is Precious Natumber and I'd like to wish all the Comfort Fit listeners a Christmas that is merry and bright and sending all the best wishes for the coming new year. I hope everyone's holiday season is full of peace, joy and happy and happiness. Merry Christmas. So what are the Christmas preparations like in the Cleary and Reed household? Uh, there's a funny kind of, oh, it's not really Christmas, but it is really Christmas and we have to do this and we want to do this. And it's just the weirdness of everything at the moment. So, yeah, the usual thing of I have a fridge full of vegetables. I'm conscious of our food waste episode uh, last week and I need to keep a, a really good, almost like a spreadsheet just to make sure we eat everything. Um We are having uh, Stalin for breakfast. We have a lovely friend who goes home to Germany every year to his family hotel and makes Stalin, which is a really dense marzipan laden cake. Um, Yeah, it's funny. We always have that for breakfast or did always have that for breakfast and Christmas uh, at Christmas when I was a kid. But just on Christmas morning, like we're having it every morning. Oh, you're having it every morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's 
way too much. And uh, yeah, we're going to bankrupt ourselves on the, the Stalin bills and we're only allowing one more loaf to be bought. Um, but yeah, it's it's in hand. Um, Liam does a lot of the performance cooking, as I call it. So he's got the big ticket stuff. I will be peeling and chopping and KPing and getting it all lined up and uh, and then we'll be bullying or shouting at our children to clean up afterwards hopefully in the end so yeah all the usual family joy around christmas food what about you yeah uh, like you um martin likes to cook christmas dinner i didn't grow up with christmas dinner um we had as you'll be hearing about later on in the podcast we had a christmas eve party which left everyone too completely fecked to do anything on christmas day so we just <laughs> ate leftovers and cookies um so uh, i kind of abdicate responsibility for christmas dinner because if we had macaroni and cheese i wouldn't mind so um martin, martin has opinions Martin has opinions. So you don't have to have like the Dickens keeping Christmas well, turkey, ham, roasts, everything. That no. that's doesn't make no, Christmas no. for you. No, no. If I don't have gingerbread cookies, I'd be mad though. Okay. Okay. So you're yeah. at this. And you're... ham. We we had ham on Christmas Eve and then like I said, we would have stolen for breakfast and then like sandwiches or you know leftovers all day long basically tasty bits yeah the leftovers are often the best i think the crispy bits mm. and the tasty bits and the in-between bits yeah um so we've come to the end of 2020 um and we are going out with a bang on the comfort feed so what have we got for our lovely listeners today yeah, well, so we've got a huge mix of things. You're going to be kept busy as you're doing all your potato peeling and Brussels sprout chopping. Mm-hmm. Um, but this first segment, we have um, Aoife Vrnok, who you might know from Censored Podcast. No smutty turkeys. She's going to be talking about Jane Eyre. And we have uh, Evine Sweeney, who is a writer talking about Little Women, another book with a big Christmas dinner kind of a scene. Uh, Even is actually going to kick off with uh, Louise May Alcott's opening um, lines from Little Women. So what happens is they wake on Christmas morning and they all get under their pillow a book, which is Pilgrim's Progress. And then they sort of read and they have this lovely kind of lying around with the sisters and their mom is gone. And then she comes back to the house and they're all excited and they sit down for breakfast. And she says, Merry Christmas, little daughters. I'm glad you began at once and I hope you will keep on. And because they said that they read the books. But I want to say one word before we sit down. Not far away from here lies a poor woman with a little newborn baby. Six children are huddled into one bed to keep from freezing for they have no fire. There's nothing to eat over there and the oldest boy came to tell me they were suffering hunger and cold. My girls, will you give them your breakfast as a Christmas present? They were all unusually hungry, having waited nearly an hour, and for a minute no one spoke, only for a minute, for Joe exclaimed impetuously, I'm so glad you came before we began. May I go and help carry the things to the poor little children, asked Beth eagerly. I shall take the cream and muffins, added Amy, heroically giving up the article she most liked. Meg was already covering the buckwheats and piling the bread into one big plate. I thought you'd do it, said Mrs. March, smiling as if satisfied. You shall all go and help me, and when we come back, 
we will have bread and milk for breakfast and make it up at dinner time. Is Christmas something that writers capture well, do you think? And the Christmas food elements of it? Well, it's funny because uh, you, you asked me to think about Christmas and then immediately Little Women came to mind. And one of the reasons it comes to mind that Christmas is because it begins the book. And I think Christmas always has this same kind of pressure that actually is modeled in that entire novel, which is that kind of pressure to be good, pressure to kind of not desire the things that we want to happen because Christmas is supposed to be about giving and not receiving. And the book is like a Protestant tract, almost a religious tract, modeled after Pilgrim's Progress. And so the beginning of the book is when the girls say that they are disappointed they're not going to get anything for Christmas this year because they're impoverished. And so the 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 anticipation is a meal that will not be up to snuff and presents that will not be up to snuff. And in a way, that's the kind of ideal way to anticipate Christmas is that you're not going to get what you want. And so therefore you should kind of stow your uh, hopes and try to think only of giving to others and being good. It's a Christmas message for COVID times then. Don't don't want the Christmas you want and just be good. Totally, actually, it is. Yeah. And I think it was funny because going back to the book, I realized, first of all, I found a copy that I had given to Willow, which of course she hadn't read. And partly <sighs> that's because we went and saw the movie instead, which is a writerly sin. But at the same time, I remembered that the book is really kind of irritating in a way to read because so much of it is about that kind of feeling of anticipation. And yet you want Beth to live, but you know that she won't. And you want the Christmas that they want, but you know they can't get it. But then they get this other kind, you know, and it's all like about that kind of anticipation. You do always have a sense with all of Louisa May Alcott's work that she's doing it as a job. And, um, you know, in a way, her books, they have, they have, they're very constrained, um, you know, and they have a little bit of joy placed just where you need it. But, um, y- you know, they're, they're not fat in any way. And you just have a sense of this kind of feminine, um, you know, um, reserve and diet to them all. And that's just the way she behaves. As her biographers have more recently discovered, you know, she actually wrote a whole bunch of stuff under pen names that was, you know, crazy pulp fiction and stuff. And so that was really more her yen. She didn't really like these little prim books that she wrote. And she was very dismissing of them later in life. And they were the ones that survived. Um, because they, you know, in a way, they're just like this really cramped and perfected picture of femininity that she knew was a lie. And that's partly why they're so well engraved in literature and every American's sense, anyway, of their sisterly selves. Although when I got here, my um, my mother-in-law told me she had read that book, you know, when she was... 12 over and over again is one of the few books she had in her house and, and she absolutely loved it so i mean it was a classic all around the world why do you think the world loved it what what did the world love about it i think that it's exactly what i think that 
I knew Willa wouldn't like, you know, this kind of sense of irritation with the position that you're made to uh, admire. And so all that ambivalence is in there. And, um, and it just, that's what feels really real is that you can kind of buy this totally fantasized picture of graceful poverty and femininity. And at the same time, you are uh, fed by uh, Joe's aggravation and wildness and um, her sense of pushing against uh, social norms, which is like very exciting and, um, and feels fruitful, um, you know, throughout the book and is rewarded. So it feels as if um, you kind of can have it both ways, even though it's disguised as something very idealized and sort of good. And also for me, it was interesting to realize breakfast is a big American thing. And Christmas breakfast actually was always a big thing in our house. We used to make, I never made them, but my sister always made them. First my mother made them, then my sister made them. They were cinnamon rolls, you know, with the total sticky, sticky buns, basically, tons of caramel. And they'd be yeasted so that they'd rise the night before. So it was a big event. And then they'd just be absolutely dripping with caramel and you'd, you know, get to kind of like pick out the yummy goop in the bottom of the pan. And it was really exciting and they smelled awesome. And that's a very American thing. This year, I've become obsessed with food in books as I read banned literature from my podcast, Censored. A few but only a very few authors ignore food and drink. Most use eating and drinking to bring flesh and bodies into narratives that are mostly concerned with invisible interior lives. And the intense cultural meaning of food at Christmas makes any reference to the feast and its preparations extremely potent. My favourite book in the world the book that I have read so often it has become part of my DNA, is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Jane, the heroine of the book, hungers as deeply for family, love and affection as she does for food. There are two Christmases in the book. In the first, she is an orphan child living with cold-hearted Aunt Reed, who excludes her from the festivities. This is the description of her lonely Christmas from Chapter 4. Christmas and the New Year had been celebrated at Gateshead with the usual festive cheer. Presents had been interchanged, dinners and evening parties given. From every enjoyment, I was, of course, excluded. My share of the gaiety consisted in witnessing the daily apparelling of Eliza and Georgiana, and seeing them descend to the drawing-room, dressed out in thin muslin frocks and scarlet sashes with hair elaborately ringleted, and afterwards, in listening to the sound of the piano or the harp played below, to the passing to and fro of the butler and footman, to the jingling of glass and china as refreshments were handed, to the broken hum of conversation as the drawing-room doors opened and closed. When tired of this occupation, I would retire from the stairhead to the solitary and silent nursery. That's pretty devastating. There are no indulgences or fine food or even a welcome for the orphan child. The next Christmas Jane celebrates is radically different. She is an adult with an education and a job, but more importantly, 
she has found her family. In a completely preposterous plot twist, Jane ends up finding her cousins by accident. There is no way anyone can defend the plot, but it's a book of wild emotion and epic scale, so realism isn't really part of the deal. Finding a family that sustains and encourages is a fantasy so many of us have when our given families fail us. Not only has Jane found a family, but she is a rich heiress whose munificence can save her beloved cousins from governessing drudgery. So in the second Christmas Jane celebrates, she gathers her scattered cousins together because she is the host, the provider of the feast. Here she is explaining her plans to her very creepy cold fish cousin, Sinjin Rivers, in chapter 34. My first aim will be to clean down. Do you comprehend the full force of the expression? To clean down more house from chamber to cellar. My next to rubbish with beeswax, oil and an indefinite number of cloths till it glitters again. My third to arrange every chair, table, bed, carpet with mathematical precision. Afterwards, I shall go near to ruin you in coals and peat to keep up good fires in every room. And lastly, the two days preceding that on which your sisters are expected will be devoted by Hannah and me to such a beating of eggs, sorting of currants, grating of spices, compounding of Christmas cakes, chopping up of materials for mince pies, and solemnizing of other culinary rites, as words can convey but an inadequate notion of to the uninitiated like you. This is a wonderful passage, the way it piles on the description, the glittering furniture, and finally the apex of the preparation, when the food is lovingly, painstakingly and laboriously prepared. I also love how cleaning and cooking are equally joyous in this, how food and the home are prepared as offerings for beloved family members. Much of the tension in the book is between Jane's deep sensuality and her violent need to mortify the flesh and tame the spirit. Here is a moment of anticipated richness, peace and enjoyment, where food and fine things are easily enjoyed. Like all of Jane Eyre, it's a fantasy. But I'm here for any fantasies of found families that give wandering orphans a happy ending. Okay, Julianne, I would definitely need more bells. Yep. Cue the bells. We're coming back in the middle just to keep everybody on their toes. Are you still listening, taking notes? We're going to be coming back. No, we're not. This is just... This no is, Christmas like exam. Say, no Christmas exam. This is Christmas miscellany um, comfort field style. So what's coming up next, Juliana? So next we are talking to your mom and to my dad about Christmas's past, which I know a lot of people are probably spending this year thinking about the Christmas they would have liked to have or the Christmas that they've had before. And maybe we can try and turn that around a little bit and make something positive out of, you know, looking back to the past. Gosh, it's kind of an existential question. Is Christmas a set of traditions, much of which we can't do anymore or... Is it uh, just being with friends and family uh, again, which we can't really do anymore? <laughs> I don't know. What What do you think? Do you, have you got manufactured family traditions around Christmas? We have, you know, we, we make cookies 
like I would have done with my mom. So that would be a tradition. The kids would expect that. Um, beyond that, we, we, we see friends on Christmas Eve, which we're not doing this year. But yeah, no, no, no huge ones. I suppose we've always stayed put in Dublin, with the exception of having gone to my folks in America one year. So mm-hmm. to some degree, it's not hugely different for my two. But what about you? What are your Christmas traditions? Yeah, we've had a few from when the boys were small. Actually, that blending of traditions, because in Liam's family, Santa always left the presents downstairs under the tree. In mine, they were always left at the end of the bed. So there was quite a lot. When, I remember when the boys were small and Santa first became a thing, there was quite a lot of, yeah, but that's how Santa, no, this is how Santa does it um, kind of stuff. We had to blend our traditions mm. into one new version of it. Uh, we walked the South Wall um, on Christmas Eve, we used to call it the South Pole when the boys were small, but there'd be way too much eye rolling if you tried that now. And uh, we'd try to time it so we'd come back in at dusk and pretend that we could mm. see Santa flying in. Um, I don't know how we ever squared that with, you know, the several hours left before they'd head to bed at that point. <laughs> but yes. um, but that was that was nice. And it's just so lovely to you see the last ferry coming in and the tugboat going out to meet it and just that sense of a city, really busy, frantic city in the run up to Christmas, finally taking a breath and relaxing mm. into it, which um, hopefully we all will be able to this year in some way um, in a very different Christmas. So we're going to go down memory lane, I suppose. Uh, I know we've done this a little bit uh, over the course of the podcast, but I would um say to anybody who wants to record their parents to actually interview your parent. It's always really interesting. You make all of these assumptions about them, which I made about this next piece coming up. Um, But when you start to ask questions and more importantly, listen to the answers, um, you might learn something new. It's 18 years since I made my first Christmas cake. I was pregnant, and as the smell wafted up from the oven and filled the house, it felt like a rehearsal for motherhood. A rite of passage into mammydom with its wooden spoons and spatulas. I've made one nearly every year since then, but there's still a Christmas staple I have never baked. They knew my, my recipe does three. Okay. Two big ones and a slightly smaller one. Okay. That's my mum, Joan. She's the queen of Christmas puddings. Every year she makes three, so over 54 years we've worked out she's made 162 of them. The recipe is in her neat handwriting, headlined pudding. She scans it and emails it to me, cautioning that this is not a recipe just anybody could follow. And it has stuff like all recipes that are used. It has... I doubt if you'd be able to read it. Sure, give it a go. It's got spidery notes added to it. No, I haven't any spidery notes, but you see, I have my own way of doing it. It's on a battered sheet of paper, pasted onto a fool's cap page in a ring binder. The holes for the binder disintegrated and were repunched on the other side of the page. Suet has been crossed out and Marge penciled over it. Now that margarine madness has gone, it's butter, of course. But as she's the only one who cooks this recipe, all of that goes unwritten. She holds it in her head. In my head, it was always a family recipe. I assumed she got it from her mother or an aunt. But I was absolutely wrong about that. This isn't a story about family heirloom recipes. It's about women and homemaking in my mother's generation. The recipe comes from a friend of mine 
before I was married. Mm-hmm. I was working in Ballinasloe and she was in the bank there. Elsie was her name. We were a group of friends and living in digs. Mm-hmm. Elsie, when she, she was the first one to get married and she made this pudding then. She, did she only make it when she got married or did she make it when she was single? No, she only started. We all only started. I had never cooked at all before I got married. Yeah. And um, she started and we had it all uh, in a meeting of friends before Christmas. And I thought it was lovely. So mm-hmm. I wrote down the recipe. Elsie is no longer with us, sadly. I like to picture that group of women in their 20s dressed up in 60s glamour gathering for her inaugural Christmas spread. My mum is a wonderful cook, but her entry into the world of women who cooked was fraught. We had very few visitors because we had very few chairs, etc. And um, I asked Shane's boss at the time for if he'd like to come for a meal. The only thing I could cook at that stage was steak uh-huh. and when I, when he came in because you usually did it I asked him how he liked his steak and he said he liked it rare well I nearly died because <laughs> I had never cooked a rare steak in my day but anyway that I got over that did but, you you just charred it did you for safety's sake or I don't know what I did. <laughs> <laughs> but Too he didn't, long. He didn't keel over and, and no, dad didn't no. get fired. Okay, <laughs> okay. so he it did. all ended happily. Giving up your job and taking on a role for which you had no training was just part of the culture, she explains. My mother had and still has a gleam in her eye and that glitter of rebellion and not doing what was expected of you is there every year when, with a steady hand, she pours molten flaming brandy over the pudding. I remember as a small child being so impressed by her daring. Is, is the special spoon still there? An ancient battered spoon okay. that I pour brandy on. And the a better way I've seen on television is to just put some brandy in a small saucepan and heat it. Uh-huh. And that way, then you don't lose any of it. And, and you set it and, on fire? Yeah. The, the, you see, the pudding is hot. Mm-hmm. And you just pour the brandy or whatever spirit you like and uh, set a match to it. The spoon. And does the brandy spoon get used for anything else during the year or is it just for the Christmas pudding? It's just for the Christmas pudding. <laughs> Excellent. And I have to look for it every year, find it. And then put it away carefully for the following year. Well, it just gets dumped somewhere, whoever's doing the washing up. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Hi, I'm uh, Bert Edelman. I'm uh, Juliana's dad. I had the typical New York Woody Allen-esque Jewish Christmas most of my life. 
we would go out and eat Chinese food and then go to a movie. When did the Christmas Eve party start? You know, I, just thinking back, I, I don't think we, we, the first Christmas party we had would have been while we were living in the Basil's house in Jamaica Plain, and you would have been born, so you were probably there. And it continued uh, almost indefinitely after that, almost every year. And it got bigger and bigger. They know that Santa's on his way. He's loaded lots of toys. And for a while, you dressed up as Santa Claus. Not that often, occasionally, early on. Okay, and how, how did that happen, the dressing up as Santa Claus? Uh, well, I think we would have a Christmas party at work when I was still at the Brigham. I never dressed up as the Santa Claus, but uh, I thought that was cool. And I think, actually, I borrowed the hematology. I was in the blood division, the hematology division. I think I may even have borrowed their Santa suit once or twice. It didn't go well. It didn't um, go well. It, it didn't go well in that um, I, I was accosted by young children who sort of knew who it, who it was. So there wasn't that much surprise or awe. You, you didn't feel the reverence that no. is shown to no, the Santa Claus and right. Macy's. I, I never felt, that's right. I never felt any reverence for being <laughs> a Santa Claus. I just felt like a target. Johnny Batuyos was one of the... Um, strong non-believers. <laughs> and how did the non-believers express their non-belief? Uh, rascalously. I feel like beards were probably yes, pulled. Yes, beards, yes, yes. And, and a lot of, we know who you are. <laughs> and what was the routine? Like, I feel like you, you appeared and you kind of wandered around. I don't know what you were supposed to do. And I believe I came down the stairs from upstairs. That might have That might have kind of blown your cover a little bit. It probably did. Do you have any memories of those parties that you're particularly fond of or that stand out? So as you guys got considerably older, the parties went on longer and there was a sort of after the event hanging out that often uh, had your friends or, you know, you and Ian and Lizzie. And I do remember the, the memorable evening that I think Bethany noticed that the cheese was moving. The cheese was moving? The cheese was moving, yes. The cheese had been out for hours, and she noticed that it appeared to be moving. I don't know whether we then Googled, why is my cheese moving? Or (laughs) if I ran up and got the stereo dissecting microscope and brought it down, and we discovered the cheese mites. (laughs) Sorry, so the surface of the cheese was moving or the whole cheese was moving? No, no, no. You could see movement on the surface of the okay. cheese. It wasn't Bethany, actually trying Bethany to leave the table. Bethany discovered it. And this was a cheese that you'd been happily eating, I presume. Yeah, we'd all been happily. It was more than one, actually, that we'd all been happily eating, yes. Over the years, my mom has produced, like, uh, you know, there used to be I'd say at least 20 varieties of things. They they have been whittled back. Um, do you have a favorite of all time? Yeah, I, well, one or two. So um, either the um, thumbprint cookies that have like raspberry jam in them or the 
the cookies that are like, I, I forget what they're called. They're like a little sandwich and they have raspberry in them. Oh, Linzer. Yes, Linzer tort, right? Linzer tort. Right. Um, I mean, there, w there was a while when we would make these things with this, um, w where we'd have this sort of iron that was very hot and you would uh, dip it into liquid uh, batter and then deep fry it and, and they would peel off and they look like stars and you'd put uh, cardamom and uh, powdered sugar on them. Um, it's a Scandinavian um, cookie. They're very good too. The, the one cookie that I don't really like are the ones that are made from egg white. Oh, you don't like the meringues? No, I because I, I can just always taste a little bit of egg in there even when they when they're peppermint peppermint tea meringue yeah mom loves them and, and i and he's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh and every mother's child is gonna spy to see if reindeers really know dylan thomas we would listen to with you guys uh, in the house. And where did that record come from? Uh, I got it. Child's Christmas in Wales. Yes. And do you, do you remember why you got it? Had you heard it before? Or well, I liked Dylan Thomas. I, I I was you know I read Dylan Thomas when I was in college, and uh, that's why your mom thought that she was getting an intellectual because <laughs> I had I said Dylan Thomas, and she's like, oh. He knows something besides medicine. <laughs> she discovered better later. Um, so I think that um, that got my curiosity up. And, and um, we may have heard it once on the radio. Uh, and then, yeah, then we started listening to it. I, I mean, I've been listening to, I listened to The Child's Christmas in Wales a couple times recently. And I tried to get Aiden interested. He was, eh. Um, you have to just let it all happen for you think of miss prothero and 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 the firemen and the snowballs and and of course listening to him read it with his sort of rolling voice and you know you you know he's enjoying it every time he reads it and it's funny because in my head there was a lot of food in that but i actually went back and there there's there's nothing about sitting down and eating the no. meal there's no. a sort of aftermath yes there's the consequences there's, there's the, the uncles you know the uncles in their three-piece um, tweed suits sitting in the living room fast asleep because you know they, they ate too much turkey i mean i guess what's what reminds me of the christmas eve party from that is the sense of the children being left to their own devices oh yes absolutely and and presents presents are not really part of the mystique of that experience. Um, so you've been celebrating Christmas for longer than you weren't celebrating it. That's right. That's Is that right. a little weird to think about as a Jew? <laughs> I mean, I've been living outside of New York longer than I lived in New York, but people still accuse me of being a New Yorker. You're not tempted to go out for Chinese food and watch a movie? <laughs> well, we may watch a movie, but no, we won't go out for Chinese food. And so I'm offering this simple phrase To kids from one to ninety-two Although it's been said 
Many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to For dinner, we had turkey and blazing pudding. And after dinner, the uncles sat in front of the fire, loosened all buttons, put their large moist hands over their watch chains, groaned a little and slept. Mothers, aunts and sisters scuttled to and fro, bearing tureens. Aunt Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered at the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. The dog was sick. Auntie Dossie had to have three aspirins. But Auntie Hannah, who liked port, stood in front of the snowbound backyard, singing like a big bosomed thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up too. And then, when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled in the rich and heavy afternoon. The uncles breathing like dolphins and the snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibble dates and try to make a model man of war, following the instructions of little engineers and produce what might be mistaken for a seagoing tram car. When we've had family over here um, for Christmas, they cannot believe the Santa broadcast. That <laughs> does not happen in America. I'll just say that. There's, there's, you know, RTE have a special connection with Santa that is evidently not, uh, doesn't happen in, in the yeah. United States. And no. um, everyone was very jealous. It. Everyone was very yeah. jealous. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Santa has it in his diary every Christmas. So we have had a lovely trip down memory lane and you've discovered your family Christmas pudding recipe is not a family recipe at all. No, and not at all. I've discovered that I remembered my dad dressing up as Santa Claus for ever and ever and he did it like twice. <laughs> and, <laughs> Memorably. And uh, considered it a complete disaster, whereas that wasn't my memory of it at all. Um <laughs> But we are now heading towards the uh, the light the light end of the programming gathering. Yeah. What have we got coming the up? Funnies. We got the funnies. funnies coming up. We have uh, we have the welcome return of Rory O'Connor O'Gorman, um, who's going to be back in another field. Only it's a very different kind of a field. Um, and as a run into that, we have a little unique uh, original composition from my husband Liam, um, based on the twelve days of Christmas um, and we won't I won't need any explanation as to what this is because it's the story of the year On the first month of Covid my true love said to me it will all be gone by Christmas don't worry On the second month of Covid my true love said to me they shall tell the past it will all be fine by Christmas guaranteed on the third month of COVID, my true love said to me, Three COVID stone can't go to the park, it will all be fine by Christmas, wait and see. On the fourth month of COVID, my true love said to me, Four hours straight on Zoom, three COVID stone, dreaming about the park, it will all be fine by Christmas, hopefully. On the fifth month of COVID, Neffet said to me, Level five warning 
4,000 Zoom, 3 COVID stone, what about the pub? They'll be open now by Christmas, hopefully. On the sixth month of COVID, my true love said to me, Six to a table level, five warning. Four hours on Zoom, three COVID stones, still no bloody pubs, and there better be by Christmas or I'll scream. On the seventh month of COVID, my true love said to me, seven hours queuing, six to a table level, five warning. Four hours on Zoom, three COVID stone, what about our pubs? I won't last till Christmas, honestly. On the eighth month of COVID, my true love said to me, eight weeks for a haircut, seven hours queuing, six to a table level, five warning. Four hours on Zoom, three COVID stones, still no bloody pubs. It'll all be fine by 2023. My name is Rory O'Connor O'Gorman, and this is Dispatches from the Field. Each week on Dispatches from the Field, I take you to a different field. The field we visit may be covered in grass, muck, or in our very festive case this week, a beautiful sprinkling of crisp white snow. This week, I am in a field of candied canes. A candy cane is a cane-shaped stick associated with the Christmas season. Traditionally white with red stripes and flavoured with peppermint, there can be variations. For example, I once spent a wonderful St. Nicholas's Day holed up in a cabin in the German Alps with only candy canes flavoured of elderberries for sustenance. I have been invited to this field here deep in the Arctic Circle by some of the agricultural workers here who are harvesting candy canes under what they say are extremely poor working conditions. Observing the back-breaking work to dig these delicious confections out of the frozen ground, this reporter is met with a troubling scene. The overseers, all at least six foot tall, with bushy beards and wrapped in warm red coats, stride around barking orders at the pickers, most of whom are not much taller than the canes themselves, and are dressed in threadbare green tunics, thin long johns and slippers that hardly do much to keep the cold off their feet. As one of the pickers is raised high into the sky and passed like a ball from overseer to overseer for the crime of having tasted a freshly picked cane, I glance over to a nearby paddock. A red-nosed reindeer with luscious coat is attended to by two diminutive grooms who at the smallest sign that the animal may be agitated do everything they can to placate it. One shudders to think that this reindeer is better treated here than these poor, living, thinking, feeling farm labourers. I think back to my winter in the German cabin surviving on candy canes with my dear Ilsa. What once tasted sweet has now, seeing this, become a bitter memory. I am walking through rows of candy canes, occasionally flashing my press credentials at the stern, bearded giants, I am here under the pretense of writing a story for Cosmopolitan magazine entitled Change Your Life, One Organic Candy Cane at a Time. I cannot find my source, codename Deep Snow, anywhere. Suddenly I feel a tug at my parka and look down. A picker has dropped a note at my feet. 
I called after him, excuse me, you dropped this, but he has disappeared into the haze. I read the note. The scroll is so tiny and seems to be written in red and green glitter. I have never seen penmanship like this. The note reads, they took him, get out now. I look up to see a flash of red moving quickly toward me. Bam! And that, dear listener, is how I ended up in this damned igloo prison. The man who runs this place, Big Red, I was to call him, he came to visit me. He told me that before he came here, these people let the candy canes grow wild. He says he taught them how to farm, taught them how to make a living for themselves. I think he genuinely believes he's improved their lives. As he left, I managed to stuff my dictaphone into a fold of his coat. Perhaps someday it will fall into the right hands. Do not despair, my friends. If I could ask you one thing, it would not be to think of me. It would be to think of all of the people who work to make your holiday season a reality. My name is Rory O'Connor O'Gorman. This is Dispatches from the Field. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, whatever year that may be. I hope we have got you in the Christmas spirit. If we have, then mission accomplished and you've had a little giggle and I hope you're not trapped uh, anywhere by candy canes, although there are worse fates, I suppose. Yeah, listening to those jingle bells is one of it's one of them. She plays them any time, any time. Stop, make it stop. Enough of the jingle bells. Uh, so it's just left for us to um, pour a big glass of eggnog or whatever the Christmassy drink is and say cheers to you, Juliana, for a fantastic um, how many months of making this podcast, enjoying it? Nine, nine, nine months. Yeah, and we've given birth. What have you given birth to? We've gestated. Uh, who knows? It. Who knows? <laughs> Creature, and thank creature. you, Catherine. This has been uh, a bright spot in a rather dark few months, which we hope has an end in sight. So all we want for Christmas is the COVID vaccine. Absolutely. As many uh, doses of it as necessary. And we couldn't have done this without all the wonderful help and time and patient interviews that people have given us over the months um, with many kind of technical issues or re-recordings or uh, the memorable uh, message that Jess sent me uh, asking was it really important that she actually recorded her end of the interview (laughs) Um, and other you know just challenges that we've all faced along the year and the people who have helped us or been part of this show have been to a person uh, incredibly generous with their time and really interesting people to listen to and I'm delighted that we've been able to talk to them and thanks to all of them you all know who you are and anybody who's listening to this episode knows we have how many do we have in our back catalogue loads anyway so you can spend your Christmas hearing hearing all the highlights Um, and that's it and thanks to everybody who listens to this uh, because we're really enjoying making it and we'll be back in the new year for another to finish off the season and then we might be taking a bit of a break and in the meantime, Juliana's going to uh, ring us out with more of those jingle bells. Happy Christmas, everybody. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas.